today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. Why would I expect anything different from them than just the life of a non-believer? And can I love them through that and in spite of that? And can I bless them in the name of the Lord in the midst of their foulness, in the midst of their antagonistic ways? Can I still do good works because I know from whence I came? Simply because we look and see, again, their attitudes, that should not shut us up, that should embolden us to even love them more and to share the grace of God with them more. Paul reminds us, we used to be just like that. Do you have a rude neighbor who gets on your nerves? In today's message from Pastor David, he reminds us that before Christ, we too were just like that. Pastor David challenges us to love our neighbors, to bless them, and continue on in doing good works, because that's what Christ did for us. When our neighbors don't know the Lord, we shouldn't be surprised by their behavior. We should extend the same grace and love that was freely given to us through Jesus Christ and be a light to the world. Now here's Pastor David with part one of his message, Ready for Every Good Work. this morning we're going to start with a test. Hopefully you're all ready, pencil, paper ready at hand. Don't be looking on your neighbor's papers. Keep your eyes to yourself, all your answers on your own. It's a fairly simple test. It's five questions. You've only got two choices in each of the questions. There's an A and a B answer. Better than fill in the blank, right? (laughs) Gee, I hate those. At least with true and false, you'd have, you know, 50-50 chance. First question, which is more spiritual, handing out a gospel track or babysitting the child of an unsaved single mother living next door? Second question, which is more pleasing to God, A, teaching Sunday school, or B, being kind and patient to that grouch at work? (laughs) Third question, we are saved by grace, therefore, A, Good works have nothing to do with our salvation, or B, good works are required by God. Fourth question, whatever good works I do, A, are only for my benefit, or B, benefit even the lost. Final question, when that final day comes and the judgment seat of Christ appears, A, the believers will not be judged at all, but only checked to see if our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Or B, we will be judged based on our works, not for salvation, but in reference to our inheritance and awards. Well, some of you, this test might have been a no-brainer. You might have went through it and you, you know exactly the right answers for it. But some of you, it might have been a difficult test. 
You might have thought, gee, I never thought of it that way. Well, today, as we finish up the book of Titus, I invite you to take your Bibles, turn to the book of Titus, just before the book of Hebrews, small little three-chapter book. We've been in it for a few weeks. We're finishing up this week in chapter three. And we're going to see that as Paul writes to Titus, he speaks about this idea of good works and how important they are and how they literally are a necessary part of our salvation. Not in order to gain salvation, mind you, but as an evidence or the reality of our salvation. Ready for the answers to the quiz? Well, you, you got to stay the whole sermon. You'll figure it out. Okay. <laughs> We're going to back up just a little bit to kind of pull things into the context of what Paul begins with here at the beginning of chapter 3. But back in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul is on a particular thought process here. He, he speaks about the fact that it's the grace of God that's brought us salvation, teaching us to live godly and look forward to the return of Christ. He speaks about the one that's redeemed us, did so that we would be his own special people. And as his people, in light of the soon coming of Jesus Christ, we ought to be zealous for or eager to do good works. Christ in us ought to drive us to do the good thing and the right thing. So that ought to help you in some of those questions earlier. When Paul gets to verse 15 of the second chapter, he in essence is saying, uh, preach it, brother. Uh, Be bold and don't let them shut you down. He says, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. And from there, now he moves into chapter 3, which is where we're at this morning. Again, with things that you and I, as the church, as the body of Christ, really need to know, we need to understand, we need to remember. Here he tells Titus in verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, showing all humility to all men. We took a characteristic test of each other this morning. How many of those characteristics would others see in us? I'm not saying you write your own characteristics out. I'm saying others are looking at you and writing out what they see in you. Do they see that peaceable spirit? You're one that speaks evil of no one, that you're gentle. You show all humility to all men. It's interesting where he says there also we're to be subject to rulers and authorities. Yeah, but... Paul really didn't live at a time when Donald Trump was president, though, did he? Or Obama, or Bush, or Clinton. No, he lived in first century Rome, where a fellow by the name of Nero Caesar was in control. And he speaks, even in the book of Romans, chapter 13, speaks again about being subject to the governing authorities. And we look and we understand, you and I, we ought to be different in this world. People ought to look at us and say, you are a strange character. As a matter of fact, God calls us peculiar people. And we ought to be peculiar. We ought not flow with the rest of the world. And all too often, I find myself flowing with the rest of the world, speaking against things that I ought to be blessing rather than following the flow of the rest of the world. Here in Titus, Paul is instructing Titus to remind you and I and the church to be ready for every good work. 
As a matter of fact, if we go back into chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 and verse 15, and then going on through the 15 verses of chapter 3, those 17 verses, during those 17 verses, Paul mentions or speaks about good works and the responsibility of you and I having good works five different times in those 17 verses. I think that what he's saying is, it's very important. I think that, again, it becomes something that should be predominant within our lives as people look at us. That there's a woman who is filled with good works. There's a man who is filled with good works, not trying to gain our way of salvation, but because God has done so much within our lives. Why wouldn't we live our lives totally and fully and completely for his glory? So what are these good works that Paul speaks of? Well, we look at some of them there in verse 2. That idea of speaking evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. You remember the quiz, the the first question, which is more spiritual, handing out a gospel track or babysitting the child of the single mother next door? Sometimes we can even give out gospel tracks without the right heart and the right attitude and doing something that on the outside looks very religious, very spiritual, becomes zero within the kingdom of God. Why? Because we do it with the wrong attitude. Remember, Cain made an offering to God, but that offering wasn't accepted. Why? Because of his attitude. But when you and I get out of our comfort zones, we go to Texas, we minister to families there, taking time out of our lives, or we go across the street and we minister to a neighbor, or we touch the heart and the life of someone that God just brings in front of us that day. Beloved, that's when I believe that God is honored because we're doing it because the Spirit of God is moving us, He's compelling us to do these things whole idea, which is more pleasing to God. Teaching Sunday school, oh man, I got to teach Sunday school again this week. I'm so sick and tired of those kids. I wish that they could get some more people to volunteer. How pleasing is that to God? Zero. But when I'm kind and I'm patient to that grouch at work, to that woman that knows absolutely nothing about Christ, and yet, man, her mouth is foul, her attitude is wretched, Can I show the love of Christ to that one? That's when it's pleasing to God. We need to have a care and a compassion for the lost, and we need to be doing actions of good works for the world around us, not just to the household of faith. Oh, but we ought to be doing it to the household of faith. Well, beloved, if that's all that we're doing, then we're falling way short of what God has called for us to be, a light to the Gentiles, to the non-believers, salt to the world that's around us. We need to be those that, again, come before him and allow him to use us as his feet and as his hands. We need to have a care and a compassion because outside of Christ, we look at that world and outside of Christ, that's exactly where we are and where some of us were in our lives. Now, maybe you came to Christ as a young person and your life wasn't filled with those things, but some of us came to Christ early on in life and there's a lot of baggage, a lot of scars, a lot of things that we carry with us because of actions and attitudes that we've done in the past. And we know what it's like to be lost and be involved in the things of this world because we've been there. We, of all others, ought to have compassion for that filthy mouth antagonistic, God-cursing individual that we work with or that's our neighbor or whatever the case might be. Perhaps it's our brother-in-law and we've just got to be that way to him. 
We've got to love him in Jesus' name. Paul says, don't forget where you came from. Look at verse three. For we ourselves were also once foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Uh, No, I don't want to see a raise of hands. I just understand that outside of Christ, if, if not all of these things, many of these things were a part of our character. Outside of Christ, that, that's how we'd live. Do you know the biggest reason that non-believers don't act like believers? This is question number six, uh, and this is a fill in the blank, but I'll give you the answer. The biggest reason that non-believers don't act like believers is because they're non-believers. I don't mean this with any disrespect, but a goat does not act like a sheep. They're a goat. And until they're born again, they they continue to be a goat. So why would I expect anything different from that coworker, that neighbor, that family member that does not know Christ? Why would I expect anything different from them than just the life of a non-believer? And can I love them through that and in spite of that? And can I bless them in the name of the Lord in the midst of their foulness, in the midst of their antagonistic ways, can I still do good works because I know from whence I came? Simply because we look and see, again, their attitudes, that should not shut us up. That should embolden us to even love them more and to share the grace of God with them more. Paul reminds us, we used to be just like that. And so because of that, in patience and in humility, we need to cut some slack for that man or that woman that's still in the world, still outside the family of God. They're outside the household of faith. But for those of us that are part of the household of faith, part of the family of God, those of us that are truly born again, believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be those that speak evil of no one to be peaceable, to be gentle, showing all humility to those men that are easy to be humble before. Is that what it says? No, to be humble to all men. That even means those that it's difficult to be with. On top of that, Paul wants us to understand that the change in our lives, it's nothing that we've done ourselves, and that ought to bring even more humility to us. It's nothing that I've done but it's all that Christ has done. He says there in verse three, as we've been foolish, disobedient, we've been deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures and living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. But, verse four, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, then he makes sure to tell us, not by works of righteousness that we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through that washing of regeneration by that renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We did not wake up one morning and say, I'm sick and tired of my life. I'm going to begin living the Christian life. No, it's the work of God that's drawn us to him. It's the spirit of God that's come and and compelled us to Christ. Jesus says that no man comes to me except the Father 
draws him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's that work of regeneration, that, that whole idea of being born again. I'm not what I used to be, not because I made the change, not because of the strength of my character, but because of that renewing work, that washing work of the Holy Spirit within me. And that's the reality and the truth of the Word of God. That's the reality and the truth of your life. And because it wasn't about you, you and I, we ought to be showing an abundance of grace to the lost in this world. We ought to be able to put up with some things. Can you imagine Christ, the precious, pure one, holy and righteous, what he put up with in this world? And even at the very end said, as he's hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The grossness, the vileness, the wickedness, the profaneness of man. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Why don't they know what they're doing? Because they're still non-believers. And beloved, we're surrounded by them every day of our life. You see, we within ourselves, we had nothing and we've done nothing to gain it. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't deserve it. It was according to his mercy that he saved us. So you see, we simply don't have anything to brag about within ourselves. Paul understood that very completely, the very core of it. That's why he wrote to the church of Galatia. He says, God forbid that I should boast in anything except in the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac Watts, writing in the early 1700s, took those words and put them to rhyme into the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, very familiar song to probably every one of us. But yet that second verse, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Since we're new creations in Christ, through the work of Christ, due to the mercy and the grace of God the Father, what kind of lives should we live? Francis Schaeffer, an American evangelist, pastor, writer, theologian, powerful guy in the 20th century, wrote a a powerful writing back. It was first published in 1976. The title of it, How Should We Then Live? The subtitle was The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. He deals primarily with you and I as believers having a biblical worldview that we don't look at the world through the eyes and, and the lenses of secular humanity, but we look at the world through the the spectacles and the lenses of the word of God. And when we do that, Francis Schaeffer was very bold and he said how you and I ought to be living our lives, whatever culture we're in, whether we're in first century Rome or whether in 21st century America, he says that we ought to have first and foremost a commitment to God's word as truth that it is true, and because of that, I have a foundation to stand on. We should also, we need to have, we must have a compassion for a culture that is lost and dying without the gospel. If the church becomes what it's becoming more and more these days, just a bless me club, 
where we come into the safety of our four walls, hidden away from the wickedness and, and the vileness of this world. And we come and we're blessed. We enjoy the time of worship. We enjoy the time of fellowship. And then we go home and don't impact our culture. Then we become of absolutely zero use to the kingdom of God. He goes on to say that we need to have a commitment to the costly practice of truth in the midst of the intellectual, moral, and philosophical battles of our day. Not man's understanding, hey, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, any truth is okay if it's good for you, this whole idea of relativism. No, we need to stand for the truth. And when we stand for the truth, guess what? It's going to cost us. It's going to cost us relationships. It's going to cost us maybe comforts in life. It may even cost us jobs. Through the centuries, it's cost men and women their lives because they dared stand for the truth. He also goes on to say, it's in living in the power and the reality of the God who is there, bearing the witness of his truth across the full spectrum of life and culture. You and I would live our lives every day and every moment of the day with the reality that God is here. God is walking with me. The presence of God is surrounding me. How should I then live? There's no doubt it's a difficult task, but it's the necessary task for you and I. Again, rather we're living in that first century, just pagan, devoted Roman Empire, or here in our 21st century, materialistic, self-centric America, you and I need to be that particular people. We need to be that peculiar people. We need to be those people that are walking in the presence of Almighty God in the midst of a lost and dying world. Quickly, Paul continues on verse 8. He says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and they are profitable to man. You and I are to be careful to maintain good works because they're good and they're profitable to man. What, you mean good and profitable for me? That means I'll get a lot of rewards when I get to heaven? Oh, it's good and profitable for the church as I volunteer my time in the church and I minister and I teach Sunday school and I serve. No, guys, when you and I live the right kind of lives in this dark world, it becomes good and profitable to the lost that are around us. Why? Because even as the word says that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's why we ought to live the lives that we live for his glory. That's why we ought to choose continually, purposefully, and mindfully choose to do the right thing, the powerful thing. Look what he says down in verse 9. Avoid these foolish disputes, these genealogies, contentions, these strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable. They're, they're useless. Reject a divisive man after the first or second admonition. In other words, you got a guy that wants to debate you. Hey, I'm not going there. And he comes again. No, I'm not going. And finally he says, just just reject the guy. Don't get into it. There are people in this life, I don't know if you've seen them or not, but I imagine you probably have. They look for every opportunity to argue or to debate. They got a B in debate in high school, and so they figure that's what they're going to do in life, Okay. And they're divisive, and they just want to argue on every point. Paul says, don't get caught up in that kind of thing. 
Now he deals, he speaks about genealogies. Understand what he's saying here. Now, my wife and I, for Christmas, we're doing the Ancestry.com DNA test to find out where we came from, okay? That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is the idea of, I'm looking at my genealogy that makes me better than you. Faith plays such an important role in our daily decisions. It guides our steps, pointing us toward the paths God knows are best for us. But do we allow it to deeply impact our lives? Pastor David has been encouraging us and challenging us to not only learn the scriptures, but allow them to permeate every part of us. We're blessed to be a part of that in your life with this study in Titus, and we hope that you'll join us again right here on The Open Word. Knowing God's Word is important, as is prayer and fellowship with other believers. All of these build a solid foundation of faith from which we can grow and share the love our Father has for us. If you have yet to find and begin attending a church in your area, we hope you'll do it soon. With that in mind, Pastor David has a special invitation. If you're in the Casa Grande area and looking for a church to attend, I'd love to have you join us here at Calvary Chapel, Casa Grande. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m., and also 6.30 p.m. every Wednesday and Saturday. You can find directions and a little bit more about our church by visiting theopenword.com. At the bottom of the page, you'll find a link for Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. Click on that link and it'll bring you to the church homepage. We're excited to have you as a part of our time in Bible study and fellowship. Our website, one more time, is theopenword.com. Thanks, Pastor David. While you're at our site, you'll be able to listen to additional messages from Pastor David, plus find out more about the ministry of The Open Word. Thanks for being with us today. Be sure to join us again to keep learning the Bible with Pastor David and The Open Word.